I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Last week, we had the pleasure of chatting with Steph Paines, founder and badass guitarist of the all-girl quartet Les Zeppelin. Founded in 2004, Les Zeppelin has since gained unanimous critical acclaim as one of the most exciting live acts around, becoming the first female rock act to pay homage to Led Zeppelin and to garner rave reviews across the board. They are awesome. In this interview, Steph talks about past musical adventures, how she came to form Led Zeppelin, and some killer career highlights, such as working with Eddie Kramer and the time Jimmy Page himself came to see them perform. I was getting all hot and bothered when she was telling that story. I can't wait for everybody to hear it. Me too. Make sure to check out their site. It could be real.net for upcoming tour dates, as well as their YouTube channel, The Les Zeppelin, for plenty of amazing videos, including their awesome quarantine series. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed talking to Steph. Steph, well, we're so happy to have you joining us on the Muses podcast, all about incredible women in music and rock and roll. Thanks for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Lynx, do you want to kick off with the first question? Sure, absolutely. We like to start off just asking about your musical journey. Where did that come from with you? Did you always have an affinity for music? Um, yes and no, I would say. I mean, yes, in the sense that really from the time I was four or five, I, I pretty much decided that I wanted to play the guitar. And I actually got a guitar for my sixth birthday. So it was sort of uh, in me from the beginning, if that's a thing, Um 
where, whence it, and from where it comes, I don't know. But it was something that I was immediately attracted to as a very little young kid, baby. <laughs> uh, so I think there was something in it, you know, it was sort of, but then I, you know, so I, I, I sort of got the guitar and, and I didn't really pick it up for real, seriously, until I was about 11, I would say, 10 or 11, at which point, once I did, that was it. I was really um, into it. And I, I, I basically taught myself how to play. So I was, I basically play by ear. To this day, I play by ear. That, I think, was just sort of what I had, you know, was an ear. And I couldn't be bothered very much with learning, you know, the sort of nuts and bolts of... Um, harmony and music. I did take some of that because I studied jazz along the way and I did get some instruction on that, but it never really stuck too well. <laughs> I was really very much an old school, listen to the record, listen to the recording and copy it kind of player, which probably has landed me where I am right now with this whole Zeppelin adventure. But, you know, I, I think that it was definitely something that was natural and easy for me in a way, because if I had picked up the guitar and it was a big struggle, I probably would have just put it down. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that. I, I, I kind of think that musicians are sort of called to it in a way as painters or writers or anything, that there's something that calls you to it. And if you can do it fairly easily, you keep doing it. If it if you have an interest in it, you know, you want to play basketball, but you really can't run or make the hoop. After a while, you get frustrated and you probably give up. So I think the two things sort of aid and abet each other. But yeah, I mean, I had a lot of other interests and lots of other things I did, but I kept coming back to music. So, you know, I haven't always played music for a living, but lately, last 20 years or so, it seems that I have, amazingly enough. Yeah, I get that. It just sort of felt natural. You picked it up and it felt yeah. right in your hands type of thing. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, you know, there are learning curves. And the first week or two, it took me a while to, you know, change chords. Like I, I could figure I was taught a chord or two or three. And then for the first week, I remember trying to sort of change from one chord to the other was the first big <laughs> plateau. But I quick I got it fairly quickly and once I got that the whole universe opened up. And then I found I could sort of hear things and play them and it was just easy. Nice. So, you know, where other people were trying, you know, it's it's a kind of, you know, you either have a rhythm or you don't. You can either strum or you don't. Um in the few guitar lessons that I've given and I'm I'm not really a teacher, but I have given it a few. I can tell immediately if somebody has any talent for it hmm. by how long it takes them to really get the knack of strumming, just strumming through a song. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And for you to start at six and 11 years old and then be able to teach yourself and learn by hearing things. What a gift. My brother had that and I did not. <laughs> I could read music, but when oh. it came to what's this chord or try to recreate this, I was hopeless. So if I would have taken guitar for lessons from you, you would have seen I wasn't one of the ones that had that <laughs> natural ability. <laughs> well, you may have been much better served with a different teacher than me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> because I, you know, I would be like, well, you know, then then it sort of goes like this and, you know, <laughs> here, listen. Um, but, you know, everyone has a different way of learning and people will argue either way. But uh, I, I just think for me, look, it very much in the same way that Jimmy Page learned to play the guitar. That's how I learned. I mean, you know, like a, a lot of those guitar players from that era of British invasion rock or blues players, certainly where it all came from. Every, they all played by ear. Hmm. The only way people learn, you know, they would they would try to find records and copy them. And that was it. And I, I actually had a jazz teacher. I did take study jazz for a little while. I said, you want to learn to improvise? Here, just copy this solo and copy that solo. And that was really the way to do it. 
Wow. So, you know, um, I kind of believe in that. But again, I play by ear. So for me, that works. For other cool. people, they need charts of, you know, where to put their fingers and which scales to play over what chords. And that for me is like running through the forest without a flashlight in the middle of the night. I was like, <laughs> I was like that would not work for me. Totally. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into, as you said, your Led Zeppelin journey, but I just had something that came to mind and it was like, did you participate in like Battle of the Bands and things like that in high school? Were you performing in bands at a young age as well since you began at around 11? Oh, wow. Good question. No one's ever asked me that. Um, no, I was, <laughs> I was into jazz and I was a jazz snob. So it's sort of a whole long convoluted story, but I did go to this summer guitar sort of, it's like a little hippie guitar camp when I was about 11 or so. And I was going to play all finger picking and folk music. And, and then all the teachers at this little guitar uh, camp, I'm just going to call it, gave a little performance and at the very end, the last teacher to go was this guy, you know, long blonde hair and a mustache who came on and played bebop on the guitar. Now, I'd grown up with Django Reinhardt because my father was a huge Django fan. And Django, I don't know if you know who that is, but uh, he's a jazz, a gypsy jazz guitarist, Yeah, you know, from France. And mm -hmm. uh, I think still the greatest guitarist maybe that ever lived in my opinion. But, um, so I grew up with that, but there was no way I ever thought I could play that, you know, that, that was beyond me, you know, but this guy came out and he played bebop, you know, like Charlie Parker on the guitar. And I lost my mind, my little 11 year old mind or 13, <laughs> however old I was. And I went into the office and I said, excuse me, I need my schedule back because you signed up. And I crossed it all out and I signed up for jazz, everything, everything. <laughs> improvisation, jazz, harmony and all that. Um, and then I just became a total jazz slob. So instead of doing battles of the bands, what I did in high school was that I played in the jazz band and I was like the only girl <laughs> at the time in the yep. sw in the swing band you know like the uh, big band and we used to travel and and man it was a great band we we won national competitions that band it was super great we had a couple of heavy got people playing sax and piano and all sorts of things and i don't know we were winning all the prizes so it was a great music program in my high school and that's what i did there were no rock bands i didn't do that till i got to college then I went back to rock. That but sounds like so much fun. It took that long. So I, I did it all ass backwards, which I think. <laughs> Good. Actually, no, yeah, exactly. No, I think it actually helped my playing because I wasn't stuck in. I hate to say it, but, you know, there's too many people get stuck really in this sort of pentatonic blues. That it's just like a blues rock style. And then they discover jazz later and they try to break out of it. But it's totally different feel. And I think that having the sort of behind the beat feel of a jazz player, even though I had to tame that, it was hard to go back to rock, weirdly. So you, you'd be surprised. I mean, it was like I couldn't play rock for a while because I was doing, you know, behind the beat seventh chords and every contorted chord. But to go backwards, I had all of that at my, I had all of that in my, you know, sort of all Your those arrows in my quiver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that it, it really served me. And I didn't think, I thought a little out of the box, you know, as a rock player. Right. Every, I've begun an appreciation for jazz music and jazz musicians over the last couple of years mm -hmm. after I fell in love with a jazz musician. And let me tell you, <laughs> thinking outside of the I, box. You have my, totally. my condolences on that. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, luckily it was a sweet, brief romance. Yeah. So I have good, a good story and a good experience, but I never really under, I mean, I'm never going to be able to understand jazz. I might just not have that brain, but I really got to appreciate it. And I, thanks for sharing that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, it was one of the things about jazz that eventually frustrated me was that it was so, for so many 
people. And so much of the music was sort of very uh, intellectualized. And I have no problem with that. I tend to be that way anyway. But, um, you know, music has to, sometimes was missing a sort of um, combustion and a passion and an intensity that was just, you know, really, um, you know, punk explosive, as it were, you know. And I think that just being in your head all the time with the music, ultimately, you know, it, it just kind of, I got a little tired of that. I wanted something a bit more visceral. And is that where your love for Led Zeppelin comes in? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's visceral, all right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think Led Zeppelin's music is probably some of the most sexual music ever created. But, you know, but it has everything, you see, that that's that's part of the allure for me is that, you know, when I eventually did sort of come around to starting some band for fun, Led Zeppelin, I, I, you know, was one of those bands that I was so in love with it. And I came later to be to really fall in love with it again, even though, you know, we all heard it growing up, you know, it's always been there later you know, as a more sort of traveled, mature musician, that's when I really understood how unbelievably great this music was on so many levels because it had um, complexity and it had dynamics and it had interest and it wasn't typical, yet it also had that intensity and passion and sensuality, you know, and that's really all of those things that are what keep me in. That, that's what drew me to it. And it's what's kept me interested for all these years. Wow. Can you talk about the process of finding the right women to play with and what you were looking for when you decided to form your band? <laughs> yes, it was, it was basically in a completely impossible <laughs> thing. But, you know, I decided to form this band sort of on a whim. I just thought I'd always toyed around with, you know, the idea. And then I just thought one day, why not just do it? It'd be so much fun. I was, I was in between gigs. I noticed that you had a podcast on Ronnie Spector. I actually played with her for a couple of years. So that was the last gig I had done. And I just felt like doing something really heavy and lots of guitar playing, you know, and, and I thought, let's, you know, maybe I'll just play Led Zeppelin and, and it'd be much more fun to have an all-girl band because I had one other all-girl band, only one, really, in my whole musical life. And it was a band that played, how do I describe it? It was called 1-900-BOX. It was a New York band and it was sort of, um, yeah, that was the idea. You know, those, not, those 900 numbers that you would dial for sex talk. Well, we sort of had a play on that. And it was a really great band. It was like, it just had that magic alchemy that, you know, the four girls, we all got together in a room and started to play. And we all looked at each other like, what the hell is this? It was like that. And we sounded a bit like Jane's Addiction, if you know that group. Nice. Yeah. It was very intense. And yet it was also sophisticated musically. And so I wanted to do something like that. And I thought Led Zeppelin, sure, why not? And then I said, yeah, I'll go find some girls. We'll play Led Zeppelin. And then I realized, oh, boy, this is like not going to be easy. And I'll tell you, it's not because there aren't enough girls to play, to have the tools and the musical depth and the musicality to play Led Zeppelin. There isn't anybody. (laughs) I don't care. It's not just girls. It's guys. Trust me. There are millions of Led Zeppelin bands, and most of them are guys, if not all of them, with the exception of couple. And, I, you know, I don't find that musicality, you know, in many of them at all. So what I was looking for was something that was near impossible. I mean, you could probably talk to Jimmy Page about this and he would understand. But it, it's there was something about that band that had these four musicians that could not were not only virtuoso musicians but they had feel and they had something about their playing that was completely unique they understood the music and they were able to play together in a way that was really powerful because that's really what led zeppelin 
is. I mean, that's sort of where the magic lies is in the way that they play together and the way they played off each other and the, and the actual alchemy between those particular four musicians, yeah. right? So, mm-hmm. so to find that is, is a near impossible task. You know, if I had thought about it a little more, I would have run away screaming and said, forget this. What are you out of your mind? And I was like, go, you know, go get some ice cream and chill out. Um, <laughs> do something else. But, but somehow through word of mouth, really, I sort of managed to get recommendations for people. And I didn't know anyone. Well, there was one drummer, the drummer that I mentioned that in the band that I mentioned, I I went to her first because I knew her drumming and she, I felt she could do it. You know, I mean, that's a tough role, but she, she was interested at first and then she realized how hard it was. <laughs> and she was done with the music. So, yeah, you know, She just wanted to like build stuff and, you know, She's like, look, I can't practice like this. This is too much. <laughs> so she backed out pretty fast. But I managed to somehow magically, I like to think it was magically, gather this group of women together. And, you know, I, we weren't perfect, but what does it take to be in a band like this? You know, it's, if you're a real fuss pot, like I am, I was, you know, I mean, you have to not only be able to play, but you have to you know, you have to look a certain way to a certain extent. I felt that was important because Led Zeppelin, that was part of their whole zeitgeist. You know, you can't, they went out there, they were sensual and, you know, sexual, you know, and they were very, um, they were somewhat androgynous, you know, there was a whole vibe. Mm -hmm. And I felt it was important to pay attention to all of those things. So, I don't know how I managed, but I somehow got this group together and we practiced and practiced, you know, for six months before we played a single gig. But it was pretty cool. It was it was a little magical. This week's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Best Fiends has challenging puzzles, but it's a casual game anyone can play. Links, I've finally done it. I am on level 300. Congrats. Wow. (laughs) It's because I play every day. Uh, I love how they've not only upped the challenges, but also keep it fresh with exciting new levels, vibrant visuals and fun events. Yeah, I really love collecting all those adorable, unique characters. And I really love how creative they get with the events. It's really been a fun distraction while I'm social distancing. I really love playing on my balcony when I relax in the evening and when I listen to my podcasts. Worried about eating up your monthly data? Well, good news. Best Fiends does not require the internet to play, so keep on leveling up. I'm out here in the country, and so that comes in handy for me when I don't have access to Wi-Fi. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Well, before we get into talking about the Les Zeppelin recordings and tourings, you mentioned that you went on tour with Ronnie Spector. We just did an episode on Ronnie based on her autobiography. And oh, my, what a story. That was, oh, yeah. Wow. Um, <clears throat> how did that come about? And what was that experience like? Wow. Well, that, that, that came about, that was, that's a whole story in and of itself. And, um, when I finish my book, it'll be in there more detail, but basically I was recommended for that gig. So, so what happened is that Joey Ramone, I don't know if you're a Ramones fan. Absolutely. All right. Well, Joey, we just interviewed Linda Ramone recently on our trip to LA. Totally cool. Well, that's cool. Well, um, Joey was a friend of mine, and he actually was a big fan of that girl band that I mentioned. I keep coming back to that because, you know, you never know what's going to change your life. You know, whatever band you're in, bands don't make it. That band ultimately didn't make, you know, get the huge record deal it should have or whatever. Um, But all sorts of things happen, and Joey became a big fan of that band, and he became a fan of my playing, which was super cool, and, you know, he was the, on top of which he was the greatest guy and amazing person. And he was a huge Ronettes fan. 
and he knew Ronnie and he decided that he wanted to work with Ronnie. Um, this is the late nineties. So we're going back a bit. He wanted to work with Ronnie and he wanted to put together a real band for her. So Ronnie had been on the road for many years um, with, you know, basically backing musicians, you know, mm-hmm. um, cause basically it's all about Ronnie, you know, to the, for the most part, but, but Joey had this other vision, you know, he thought, ah, she's got to get out of that kind of standing up there by herself with other people just like behind her, you know, like wallpaper. So he thought she needs like some, a real band, like with some girls in it. And he thought of me as a guitar player who could also sing a little. So he called me up (laughs) and said, you know, how would you like, I think, you know, I'm working with Ronnie. How would you like to, you know, I think you'd be great in this band. And I just thought, yeah, that would be fun. Again, it was totally different than anything I'd ever done. But, you know, if Joey says something, I it's probably true. And I believed it. <laughs> Joey didn't lie. So so I basically he set up the audition for me with the manager. You know, I called her, called him up, uh, Jonathan Greenfield. I don't know if you got into Jonathan Greenfield at all, but she's married to him and, and he's her manager. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's sort of after chatting, he just said, well, why don't you come in and I actually was most of the time living in San Francisco at the mo at that time, which was another whole story. But I, you know, I can't, I was coming to New York a lot. I also had a place in New York that I still had. And so um, I just came in for a rehearsal slash audition and that was it. We all was love at first sight. She, you know, I think the first thing she said to me actually was, oh, I smiled and said, hello. You know, and she noticed I had dimples because she has dimples and she goes, oh, look at the Blah, 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 blah. And that was it. We loved each other after that. Oh. But I had such a great time with Ronnie because for me, it was just pure fun. And I was thrilled to be on stage with her. And so I got to tell you, I was the one person in the band, you know, I was excited and smiling and exuberant and moving around. And she loved that, you know, and that's what Joey sort of wanted, you know, um, so, you know, I did that for a couple of years and we had some incredible experiences just just playing wild places arenas we played for uh we played at the g8 which in i don't know if you know what that is but it's every uh year there's this summit of world leaders (laughs) and uh it happened to be in denver that year and they were doing an american review of music and they asked ronnie to represent the 60s wow so she took me and the other singer. I mean, I was basically a Ronette and a guitar player. So it was, you know, it was economically uh, sound. That's so so cool. I was, I know it was so weird. That was a Ronette. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it's just, it's just really funny. And we went, we played for like the leaders of the free world in Denver. It was incredible. And, wow. you know, Chuck Berry was on, you know, oh my came goodness. on after us. And I, yeah, it was just, just the most incredible and there, the Clintons were sitting in front of us and Tony Blair and all this stuff. It was amazing. Wow. I, I, I love playing with Ronnie. And I learned a lot from her. I mean, watch, boy, she was really something, you know. When she's yeah. on, Ronnie is just incredible performer. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Mm-hmm. 
Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. Wow. Yeah. Just hearing that, I'm smiling like crazy. So, (laughs) well, I can't wait to read more about it in detail in this upcoming this book you upcoming, yes, are writing sit my right? butt down and start writing it well yeah. I've, I've been writing little by little I'm, I was a writer for many years anyway so I'm trying to sort of get back and you know more Amazing. into it you, yeah while I Good. while I don't practice <laughs> <laughs> oh I absolutely keep going with that yeah Talk about magical moments, my goodness. And it's so cool how things like that come together. And there was something else I learned when I was researching you, that your the first Led, Led Zeppelin album was produced by Eddie Kramer. Yes. I imagine that must have been magical as well. And how, how did that come about? Right. Well, you know, it's I, I like to think there was a lot of, I don't know how much you believe in magic or not, but uh, a lot. Yeah. You have to if you're in Led, Led Zeppelin or Led Zeppelin or anything. I mean, because uh, I, I think a lot of it is magical. But um, <laughs> Eddie Kramer's story is pretty funny because, and this was back in 2007 or so, um, and it was a different lineup. You know, the bands had many different lineups, but we were we were always joke early on. I would joke with them and say, you know. Maybe one day Eddie Kramer will will come in and produce our record or something silly, you know, like that. And uh, it was a joke, right? Well, we we were sort of hitting this our our stride or our first stride or one of the first ones, and things were kind of exploding. And we had a manager and we had agents and we had all this stuff. And the manager, we decided to put out our first record, which is was entitled just Led Zeppelin, and we were looking for producers, you know, and we actually had a bunch of fairly well-known producers who were interested in working with us. And before we dis- we made our decision, I said to our manager, I said, you know, just for the hell of it, just because I always used to joke about this, we should just ask Eddie Kramer, you know, maybe he would produce this. You know, I didn't even know what he was doing. And, uh, you know, the manager's like, well, all right, couldn't hurt to ask. So, he gets in touch with Eddie Kramer, you know, and all I can tell you is the next thing I know, the phone rings one afternoon and I, I was sitting in my office with the guitar playing something and I pick up the phone. And it's like, hello, is this Steph? And I'm like, yes. Cause oh, it's Eddie Kramer calling. <laughs> and you know, I just, I nearly fell off the chair. I just couldn't believe this. It's like, really? And we chatted for an hour or this or that. And sure enough, he was up for producing a record. Uh, he, he basically said yes. Okay. You know, I mean, he said he, he looked into the band. He felt the band was good enough. And he felt, you know, he felt good about revisiting some of that material in a new way, you know. And the next thing you know, there was Eddie Kramer in the studio going, are we rolling, you know, uh. rolling, Steph. <laughs> which you can hear on physical graffiti, but um, yeah, it was just surreal. It was totally surreal. I mean, I remember going down to meet him to chat with the manager and, and, you know, we went to see him at electric lady studios, which as you know, is, is it's in New York and Eddie Kramer basically designed that studio for Jimi Hendrix Mm -hmm. because, you know, he engineered all of Jimi Hendrix's records. Yep. And I walked in with our manager to Studio A at Electric Lady, which was the big room. And there was Eddie working on Hendrix tapes, original oh masters. <sighs> and he says to me, you know, we're, we're talking, he goes, would you like to hear the solo to Are You Experienced Right Side Round? Because that solo is backwards on the record. Wow. He played me the solo the way Jimmy recorded it so that it could be played backwards. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I know. We were just freaking out. I mean, you know, moments like that were just too much, you know, it was just great. So it uh, was amazing. I mean, it was just, you know, it working with him was really something. It was, it was, uh, 
it was, it, it just was one of those moments when you almost say, now we're Les Zeppelin, right? Not Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, there is a Z there, right? I'm not like, it's starting to get fuzzy, but it was, it was just great. Uh, uh, we live for these record. stories. Yeah. He, he made a great record. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And those fall off your chair moments are, they just yeah. make life worth living, don't they? Well, yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, you hope to have lots and lots and lots of them, which means you need carpeting because you're going to fall off the chair a lot. <laughs> you just need to make sure you're not, you know, breaking anything. Yeah. And what a wonderful lesson. It's just like, you never wouldn't know it be cool if we could talk to this person or if we could work with this person? Never be afraid to ask, right? Exactly. Um, if you don't ask, no one can ever say yes. You just have I, to not be frightened of no. That's that, all. Yeah, me and Shanti have a saying. We say a no is free. So we always try. I like that. A no yeah. is free. Yeah. Who did you take that from? John Waters. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, for Les Zeppelin, you recorded in a similar fashion as the guys did back in 1969. Is that right? Yeah. That, so why, that was a different record. That was the second record. The second one. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and why was that important to you? Well, that, okay. So, so that record was completely different than the first one. The first one mm-hmm. with Eddie was, was a sort of sampling. We had one song from each of the first six records that Led Zeppelin made. And then two originals on that, actually. Um, one of which was the song I was playing when he called me. So that was weird <laughs> that I was kind of writing. Um, the second record we did was a remake of Led Zeppelin's first record. Mm-hmm. So, which people call Led Zeppelin one, but it really wasn't. It was just called Led Zeppelin. Right. Um, we call it Les Zeppelin one. But the thing about Led Zeppelin's first record is that, aside from the fact that it changed the world and is amazing, the whole vibe of that record, the way they recorded it so quickly in 1969, um, was very much rooted in the concept of going into the studio as a band and just playing. Okay. So, you know, even though there was multi-track recording, which of course they overdubbed things on it, of course, a lot of that record sounds the way it does because it was just the band together recording a combustible performance of these, you know, songs, these uh, many of which were bluesy in nature, you know, Mm -hmm. and improvised and stuff like that. So I felt, you know, we all agreed that it was important. I I really believe that in order to try to capture some of that magic and that lightning in a bottle, you've got to do it that way. You can't just go in and overdub everything. It's just not going to be the same. The band has to play it and it has to have that um, urgency and that immediacy of a live just a brilliant live performance. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we tried to do. That's what we did for a lot of that record. We would just went in and we recorded the basic tracks together and we kept going until we got one we liked. And then we added things over that, which was very much the way they did it. But on top of that, we were working in a studio with a a friend slash producer who happened to be um, a one of the world's leading vintage guitar experts and dealers. Uh, he's actually also a friend of Jimmy's. Nice. And we were able, because of his incredible uh, inventory, <laughs> as it were, I mean, that he had everything. He had pretty much everything that was used by Led Zeppelin at the time of their recording in 1969. And we could basically use the exact same equipment right down to the 1959 Les Paul, which is like the Holy Grail. They're worth half a million dollars. Wow. Um, You know, I mean, he had the right amps. And then when we didn't know what was being used, he would call Jimmy 
what'd you use on this? Oh my goodness. And, you know, Jimmy would sometimes tell him and sometimes not, but, <laughs> you know, but he'd go, oh, yeah, it was that, you know, uh, J, you know, J200 Gibson. And goes, which one? The one with this, you know, tailpiece or the one with that? And Jimmy would tell him and he goes, oh, I have that. And he would go through the shelves, you know, his giant, you know, inventory and pull out the exact guitar. And I got to play that. So I I used to joke that there was nobody that could have made that record except for me at that moment in time and and Jimmy, if he wanted to make it again, because Mm -hmm. we just had. So we were really fastidious about matching everything sound for sound, you know, and vibe for vibe. And we only could have done it with that, you know, those producers who were helping us and, and who were willing to undertake a project like that, you know. If, if we had to pay for every half second of studio time, it would have been a, you know, $300,000 record, you know? Yeah. There's no way. So at this point, you have these two amazing records. You're touring a lot. I'm wondering, as a group of women playing the music of these beloved male rock gods, what that experience was like. Did you ever feel more pressure or scrutiny from male audiences or what's, what's your experience with all of that? Good question. Well, you know, that was interesting because when we, when we first started, I was worried about that. You know, I mean, once I realized I was an idiot for the thinking of the whole idea in the first place, because then I had to find people, as you mentioned, (laughs) which was impossible. The next impossible thing was, oh, my gosh, you know, now we have to play this music and we have to do it properly, which is not. (laughs) I mean, it's formidable task if you're really not just throwing it off, if you're really trying to dig down and capture what Led Zeppelin had. It is hard stuff. Mm-hmm. To, there's so many, so much nuance and so many styles and this and that. So what, what I was worried about was just, you know, for anybody, you know, we were undertaking this thing and I felt a great responsibility, um, not only because, you know, of the music itself, you know, that we were playing it, but because we were women, you see, because I, I felt... You know, if we put, if we don't do this right and we go out there and we look, you know, not so great or, you know, make lots of mistakes or don't have the right attitude or feel, it's going to actually be worse for women musicians. Mm-hmm. We're going to make it worse. I really felt this. I felt like it was, this was on my shoulders. Like if I was really going to do this crazy thing, then... I was going to have to do it justice or else we would be dragging women back in time and not forward. So, you know, we worked and worked and worked. And and one of the things I was most worried about were the really pure Led Zeppelin fans, most of, you know, the the men who -hmm. were going to come out there who were skeptical to begin with and say, yeah, a bunch of chicks playing this music that is like sacred yeah. For, forget about it. Are you kidding? You know, and then with a name like Les Zeppelin, that even added to it. But guess what? To my sort of surprise, what ended up happening was that, yes, most of these are audiences, uh, you know, many of whom were those people I just described, would come in thinking, oh, this is kitsch or, oh, yeah, what a joke or this might be fun or they're Les Zeppelin. Maybe they'll kiss each other on stage or <laughs> like, what am I getting into, you know? Um, and then we would start to play and you would see the, the responses on their faces, like in the front row. Yeah. Like after the first minute or so, jaws sort of like slacking and and then being like no we're not really getting like this are you kidding you know Uh, they would be stunned because they weren't expecting women to assault them like this yeah with this i was just had the image of i was gonna ask so what was the song that you decided to start with that was gonna slap (laughs) them in the face (laughs) oh good times bad times yeah nice definitely That was you. Oh, pretty much the start. The number one, the 
the first song for for the many years. Yeah. I mean, what else do you start with? You know, in the days of my youth, I was taught what it means to be a man and you're a woman singing it. It's perfect. Yeah. Plus it's, you know, this like, Dana, you know, it's just got that, it, you know, that those chords at the beginning are just so in your face. And so we are now in control, you know? Um, and it was really a stunning thing because what would happen and it started happening from the beginning, even though I've been, you know, we got, we, we got a lot better as we kept playing, but, you know, having practiced, you know, it was good enough to make them to, you know, disbelieve, you know, they shatter their disbelief. But what began to happen is that they would come in skeptical and leave transformed. Oh, I love that. And we got very, very little pushback from those fans that you guys you're talking about. Amazing. Very little. Yeah, it was rare that we heard negative things. I mean, you're always going to hear that. There were plenty of negative things, you know, and people were, you know, calling us all sorts of names because they thought the name of the band and we were, how dare we? And this was sacred. You know, it was a little like the religious right coming up again. We came up against some of that, but, yeah. um, but those hardcore Zeppelin fans, they understood it. You see, yeah, they got it. They were like, yes, that is, you get it. Mm-hmm. You get what, what this music is and you're giving it to us. Thank you. You know, they're the ones that got it more than anyone else. Hmm. Amazingly, you see. So it was, it was really quite wonderful. That must have felt lucky. good. Lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so it was great. All right. Well, on the subject of performing and touring, what were some of the most exciting places that Les Zeppelin has gotten to perform? And if you have any fun tour or fan stories, we would love to hear it if you'd like to share it. <laughs> well, the fan stories... Uh... You know, groupy fan stories we can't really talk about on the air. We understand. Canadian Broadcasting Company. Um, (laughs) uh, But gosh, we played so many adventures. We had so many crazy adventures with this group. I mean, first of all, we've toured in so many countries. I mean, for a band like this that you consider, we don't call ourselves a tribute band, but, you know, a cover band or a band playing music that was written by other people. Let's just say that celebrating the music. Usually it's, you know, you're, you're playing locally or you're nearby States or maybe you tour, but you're not really touring the country. You know, Um, we did full length U S tours and we also played in all over Europe several times. Like almost every country in Western Europe, we've played in Poland, we've played in Japan, we've played in India. We went to India to do a benefit concert in Mumbai after a terrorist bombing a while back. Uh, I don't know if there was a horrible bombing in the city uh, of of some big hotels Wow. Many, many people die. They, they were bombs that went off in hotels and, and train stations. Um, it's terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. And there were not enough ambulances. So this was a benefit concert to raise money for ambulances. And they somehow thought of us through our agent. Um, we did that. We played major festivals uh, such as Bonnaroo. Bonnaroo was unbelievable. That's a whole story. We could take up an entire broadcast with that. <laughs> But Bonnaroo was one of the most amazing. We've played Download, which is, uh, you know, what used to be called Donington Park, which is a huge hard rock festival in England. We've played the Isle of Wight. Nice. I mean, the Isle of Wight. Uh, yeah, this, wow. It was just crazy, you know. Um, and Hellfest in France and major festivals in Germany, Rock in Park and Rock Am Ring, you know, for tens of thousands of people. Um, and all of those were incredible experiences. We played in, um, where else? We did full-length tour of Australia. Wow. And, um, yeah, just, you know, so many wonderful places. And it's really been, you know, one surprise after the next. But but I'll just say everywhere we've gone, 
whether it be India or or London, you know, people know the words to these songs and they are absolutely, it's important to them. Yeah. This is important music to people all over the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. So it's really... So what was more nerve wracking, playing for tens of thousands of people or for Jimmy Page himself? I don't even have to think about that before you end your sentence. <laughs> oh, playing for Jimmy was the most stressful, nerve wracking thing <laughs> ever, ever. <laughs> even though I had imagined doing it for 10 years before it actually ever happened. And even though I imagine pretty much every night while I'm playing, I try to think if Jimmy's in the audience, you know, I try to think about that because that keeps the bar raised. Mm-hmm. I want to think that I'm playing as if Jimmy's in the audience. And I take, mm-hmm. you know, t- very seriously, t- <laughs> taking it way too seriously, but that's the sort of level I was gunning for because why do it? Otherwise, you know, it's like if you're not going to aim to play at that level, then why bother? You don't want to hack, hack this music out and you want to learn something from it and you want to try to do it justice. So when Jimmy actually let me know that he was going to attend a show and all I can say is thank God I'd met him already, because if I'd never met him and he was coming to the concert the first time, I think I would have just lost. I, I don't know if I could have you know, made it onto the stage, but luckily I'd already met him. And that's part of the reason why he came. We we just hit it off. It That was a whole wonderful story too. But, you know, it, it was just, he's, he was so lovely about it. And I said, oh, we're going to come to England. And he said, oh, great, blah, 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 blah. And so we did. And I let his office know. And I basically heard back from him the day of the show. Wow. I I I was going to say it was probably immediately or right last minute. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, it wasn't way before. I would have just spent all that time really worrying. I knew it was possible, but I didn't know, you know, if it really would transpire. But it was a funny story because we were traveling back from the Isle of Wight, where we had played the night before. Talk about, you know, sublime experiences. And we're in the van, you know, heading to London. And it's a long story, but Jimmy had texted me on one of those little phones we, we had, you know, you know, when you used to go to Europe, you, you would, now you just use your, your phone there, mm-hmm. but then you would have to get this little crazy phone where you're poking at the, the numbers that become letters mm-hmm. and typing out the text, you know, one letter. At a time. Yeah. A little you know burner what I'm phone. About. Yeah. Horrible. So, um, I, what had happened is that he had texted me and I didn't get up till noon. So I'm looking at it and his text comes through and all I see is love Jimmy XX. And I looked at my phone in the van. I was like, love Jimmy, Jimmy who? And Lisa looks at me, love my drummer. You know, she's it's like Steph. And what had happened is that he had sent me two texts because he forgot to sign the first one. Okay. I guess he just didn't realize it was a weird phone. He had a, so the next text only said, love Jimmy. The first one was the whole explanation of, hey, it's Jimmy, blah, 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 blah. What do you want time are you on? All this stuff. So I finally got to, so I'm trying to text back and the phone was ring, rang in my hands while I was texting back. And so it was Jimmy, you know, he's like, hey, hello, is this it's Jimmy Page, oh. you know. That, that also was a fantasy, you know, like that I would pick up the phone and it would be him, but yep. um, it was, it was great. So it was really fun. And, and he's, he basically said, I'm in the studio, but I'm busy working on this thing, but what time are you on? And I'll try it. You know, why don't you put us on the guest list and hopefully we'll, we'll make it, you know? So he didn't totally out and out commit, but I had a good idea that if he could be there, he would. So I didn't know for sure, but I knew it was a good possibility. So we all were just, look, it was, it was, I realized, (laughs) I realized before we went on stage, I had two choices. I was either going to think, oh, my effing God, Jimmy's going to be in the audience 
and I would just completely fall apart mm-hmm. with nerves, right? Or I realized I could just say, you know what? You play like he's out there every night. So what difference does it make? Just yeah. go yeah. out there and, and, and play your guts out. So, I, you know, we huddled in our little pre-show huddle. And I said, guys, let's just play our hearts and souls. Let's just do it. And we all just were like, yeah. You know, we went out there with such energy. And we just, I, I don't think it's the greatest gig we ever played. But it was one of the most, it was super energetic. I mean, it was a good gig. It, uh. it was great. You know, I mean, the audience loved it. There were about four or 500 people. And somewhere to, in the middle, at some point, Jimmy walked in. And I was, <laughs> I, I was in the middle of the bow solo, I think, for Dazed and Confused <laughs> all the time. <laughs> you know, which is probably sort of good because I was focused on like the bowing and the witchiness of it. But the other girls knew and they were backstage because I was out there by myself and they were like, oh, my. They told me later, don't tell Steph, you know, (laughs) he's out there because they knew for me it was a big deal, you know. Yeah. um, But he he walked in with his friend and he was back by the bar and he watched the show. And uh, I had reports that he was really digging it and reports of things he said. And after the show was over, I mean, we did an on, you know, it was at some point I saw that I saw his hair, you know, I knew he was there. And after the show, you know, he came racing backstage and he just loved it. Thank goodness. That's all I could say. I I was in some sort of outer space land. I think I, you know, I had everything I took, everything I had was spent just to get on that stage and do what I did knowing he was going to be there. When it was over, I'm telling you, you guys, I couldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. I was, I was absolutely like I was in, I'd never spoken so little in my life. I think <laughs> I was completely in a state of numbing post-traumatic stress. <laughs> you know, I was like, I, I just, I, I almost couldn't speak to him. It, yeah. I, I was, I just was, you know, which is what I'm saying. It was a good thing I had nice conversations with him before because that would have been terrible. But um, it was really incredible. He just loved it. He spent an hour with us after oh, the show. That's so great. What a surreal moment. Like It was totally, I, yeah. I can totally. imagine like why you were speechless. It's just, it's <laughs> like, it's a dream that you think of like all the time. And then like suddenly you're living it and you're like, how did, how, how did this even how did I get here? Like, it's just amazing. Yeah. It was really, yeah. really a, a crazy moment, but you know, it was, it was really wonderful. And it was wonderful that he loved it. I think mm-hmm. what, you know, we talked about this a bit, but what he really saw was what I had been aiming for the whole time. Mm-hmm. He got it, you know, he saw it. And, and I knew I, that's really what it's about. And that is, because when he came in from the, you know, backstage, he basically said, that is how it should be done. Yeah. That is rock and roll. That is what it's about. That is how it should be done. Like he was as surprised, you know, as we were in a way. I mean, he wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. He wasn't expecting the explosive passion and energy that we were giving out through his music. And that to him is what that music is. Yeah, it must be surreal for him too to see it reformed in this kind of way and uh, have it be like just as spectacular as well. You know, like that's it must have been magic for him as well. I think it was it was to a certain extent because afterwards, finally, when everyone left and he and I were like alone in this venue and we were sort of walking out, he said to me, he "Goes, you know." It, it it was so sexual. Like he <laughs> said this to me. Like he was sort of surprised. And I looked at him, I went, Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I realized, oh my God, he never really saw himself. Like he he probably didn't really even understand how the effect that his own band had. Yeah. Except for what was coming back at him, which is different than mm-hmm. seeing it. Yeah. That's perfect. Stage is, yes, you get a response of joy and elation and craziness and people ripping their clothes off, maybe. 
but all of which we've had, but <laughs> yeah. you don't really get to know what they're, what they're getting. And, and watching a video is not the same. Yeah. So I think he was surprised. Mm-hmm. And, and couldn't have know, asked for a better yeah, he, he, response. He never, yeah. He never, he never realized maybe how, <laughs> like how sexual it really could be and seeing women doing it, you know, was also, but, um, it, it was it was fascinating, and he has since spoken about the ban to people, and has since said in the press that he loved what we did, and he recommended us at the you know at, when we you know we played at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That may be one of the most amazing. You asked earlier, yeah, what was one of, playing at the Met to me was like the penultimate honor, and that was, was last year, yeah. Yeah, because it was it was for the Play It Loud exhibit, which basically yes. featured Jimmy's guitars, mm-hmm. and they asked us to represent and play a night, a concert. You know, about a month before it closed, they did this whole big evening around that exhibit, and we played a live concert in their big concert hall, and uh. it was completely packed. And I got, I was, you know, I, I basically sat down with Brad Talinsky, who, you know, wrote, used to edit Guitar World and wrote several books on Jimmy. Um, and, sorry about that. And um, talked about Jimmy's guitars. So I, um, I basically became the, you know, the spokesperson. It was sur- it totally surreal, and the, and and at, afterwards I asked the curator. You know, we we're so honored. It was so beyond honored to play that. That was one of the greatest moments in the band's history so far. I said, "Why did you think to ask us?" You know, and he said, "Well, oh, Jimmy told us." Oh, uh, it's just amazing. It was amazing. I, 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 you know, first I was so dumbstruck. I, I thought, oh, he's lying. And then I thought, well, why would the curator of the Met lie to me? <laughs> why would he lie to me about that? I mean, I, you know, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I, I couldn't figure a good reason why he would lie to me. So I figured it must be true. Wow. Beautiful. So, you know, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing with us about the incredible success you've had with Led Zeppelin and telling us a little bit about your early life. And we certainly can't wait to hear about things in more detail. Um, Just before we wrap up here, I'd like to kind of leave it to you. Is there anything that we didn't touch upon or mention that you'd like to talk about? We talked a lot about Led Zeppelin so far and do you want to talk about the future, what you're currently working on? Um, Anything that we missed that well, you like to well, chat we about? we hit on dragon suits, but that's okay. We could do that next time. The dragon suits. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, what can I tell you? Well, no, I think we covered a lot of ground. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things we could. There's so much to this band's mythology. I mean, Led Zeppelin and, and our own experiences in this world. But... Um, you know, we do have a new album out, which is um, new. I say new because it's, you know, the most recent. We mm-hmm. put it out last year. And it's called The Island of Skiros, which has a sort of um, remote connection to Achilles and Achilles' Last Stand, which is one of the tracks on that record. But that record is is recorded with a string section, and that's really cool. So, yeah. um, there, you know, that that's sort of one of the latest evolutions of the band is to play concerts with strings and to really take the music out even a little further into its orchestration. Yeah. Really cool. Next level. Yeah. I mean, not like with an orchestra, no. I mean, with a string section. So it's mm-hmm. not, it's still the full power of the band. It's not, you know, it's not kind of softened any. Um, so they, you know, people can check that out if they like, you know, we've got a website or they can go to, um, you know, we have a merch site at Shop Le Zeppelin. They can get T-shirts I, and the underwear that you mentioned earlier. Definitely looking those out. <laughs> we have totally. Yeah, you cool. are you were doing like a quarantine series as well, right? Yes, we were. We have three out so far, which they can check out in our YouTube channel. They just go to YouTube and go to Le Zeppelin, the Le Zeppelin. Cool. Um, and those were super fun. But you know, it's like playing what do you do when you can't play and i you know we could probably dev- uh, 
talk about that forever. But what we decided to do was to, you know, make you can't really play live on Zoom at this point, as you know, mm-hmm. because there's a time lab lacks. I'm sorry, there's time lapse. Um, so we had to make recordings and videos and we put together little films, you know, our, our singer, um, Marlene, she is great at editing. And so she put these together and we all, you know, there's Lisa Harrington Squires. She was playing drums and she plays funny toy drums at one point. And, you know, we just got creative with it. And Joan Chu is a bass player and keys. And, you know, she was super helpful and was super helpful in orchestrating the record too, with the string section and everyone just really contributed and, and it was, you know, it was nice to connect. And so we did three songs that became little mini films and are really kind of fun. I mean, they're really mm-hmm. enjoyable. They're they like, are. you know, like little Beatles or monkeys movies or something. It's, just, <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. So that was a whole other side of the group. Um, and you can see that on Facebook or you can see it on our YouTube and um, or Instagram. So I would just say, you know, check out the band in all its various forms and and uh and hopefully we'll be playing soon again yeah. we, we actually are have the first few gigs we have our first drive-in coming up so that's cool who knows who knows what the future will bring but we're trying to be positive yeah that sounds wonderful a drive-in sounds like a great idea yeah that's i would love to be to what's happening basically it's a drive-ins for now yeah yeah for now so. Burn rev out. your rev your motor and <laughs> yeah. vroom, you know yeah put on your seatbelt and <laughs> fasten those seatbelts yeah. awesome anyway it's a pleasure thank you for having me well, thank, thank you. you so much, Steph. This has been really enjoyable. And this has been our first Quarren Pod uh, yeah. interview. Quarren so. Pod. Yeah. yeah. We were a little pod. rusty, but thank you. <laughs> Quarren cast. I don't know. What yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. yeah and you guys have a very cool podcast show. I think what you're doing is great. Oh, I'm, thank oh, you. Thank you so yeah. much. It's cool. It's well, very, like, very amusing. Yeah. <laughs> no, my face hurts from smiling just because we live for these stories because we devour them in magazines and stuff like that. But hearing it from the source and hearing it from the person is just why we started doing this. So thank you so much. And congratulations to you on all of your success with this band and everything. It's so nice to see. And can't wait uh, to read the hopefully book. Hopefully we can see you. Yeah, yeah and can't have- wait to see the book. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, definitely. Uh, we will see you in Canada at some point or just come this way. We'll see you this side. Either we will way. when we can, as yeah. soon as we Say, can. Ditto. We will. We will. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Absolutely. thanks again. We'll do Steph. it again. Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.